to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey, and I am joined here today by the lovely Rebecca and Nicole. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of Fred and Mary West, and then Nicole will be educating us on the intricacies of paired and team serial killers, and how it played an instrumental role in this case specifically. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of incest, torture, sexual assault, dismemberment, child abuse, and mutilation. And with that being said, I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. Perfect. So I'm going to start with a little bit of background on Fred and Mary separately and then get into sort of how they met and their crimes together. So Fred West was born on the 29th of September in 1941 in much United Kingdom. And Mary West, uh, who was born Rosemary Letts, uh, was born on the 29th of November in 1953 in Northam, England. Neither Fred nor Rosemary had very good childhoods, which is uh, suspected to have been part of a cause for their really sadistic behavior in their adult lives. So to begin, Fred had grown up quite poor. Um, he lived on a family farm that had no electricity. His father frequently sexually abused his sisters. He had, uh, I believe, six other siblings. Um, to the point where incest in his family was seen as normal and it was just kind of an everyday occurrence. Um, by the age of 12 years old, Fred himself was also being sexually assaulted, but by his mother. So his mom was sexually assaulting him and his father was sexually assaulting his sisters, unfortunately. Um, and his father had also taught him that bestiality, so having sex with animals, was okay as long as he didn't get caught. And Ew. he taught him how to commit bestiality. What? Oh. With what animals? Nowhere specified. Um, I don't know if it was ever revealed what he did this with, but I don't know if I want to know. Ew, <laughs> that's so icky. Yeah, so in addition to a hard home life, Fred had a pretty hard time in school. Um, despite getting to the age of 15, he uh, in school, he was still hardly literate. He almost just couldn't read. So in 1956, when he was 15, he dropped out of school. Uh, just two years after dropping out of school, he was involved in a motorcycle accident that actually left him in a week-long coma, and he suffered fractures to his skull, arm, and leg. And after this um, coma, he started to experience sudden bursts of rage and anger. So I think something uh in this motorcycle accident caused some brain damage that kind of affected his uh mood and behavior which Yikes. definitely could be a factor in what he did in the future yeah definitely so moving on to rosemary she also grew up in a poor family with multiple siblings um but her mother was severely depressed um it's reported that while she was pregnant with Rosemary, she was actually undergoing electroconvulsive therapy. Um, and her last treatment of electroconvulsive therapy actually occurred just days before giving birth to Rosemary. Oh. So um, I'm unsure of the science behind it, but it is suspected that this um, ECT caused some prenatal injuries to Rosemary that may account for her behaviors in her adult life. Yeah, um, is that like something you can do when you're pregnant? 
I feel like physicians should know not to give electric shock therapy to pregnant women. Mm-hmm. See, that's how I feel. But this was like the 40s and 50s, so maybe it just wasn't as well known. Right. Everything went in the 40s and 50s. True. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> So, um, when Rosemary was a young teenager, her parents got divorced, um, because her father was quite abusive towards her mother. So, because of this, she went to live with her mother. But, for some reason, when she was 16, um, she decided that she wanted to live with her father instead. Um, but this turns out to have not been a good decision, because her father actually suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, and he was very prone to extreme violence. Um, and as a result of this, on multiple occasions, he sexually assaulted both Rosemary and her older sister in the household. Um, possibly because of this and the other troubles she had growing up, by the age of 13, um, Rosemary wasn't only being sexually assaulted, but she was also sexually assaulting uh, and molesting her younger brothers after they'd go to bed. Oh. At 13 years old. At 13 years old. Yeah. Ew. Jesus. Her youngest brother, I believe it said at the time, was only seven years old that she was doing this. Oh, that's wow. horrible. So, moving on to how they met. Um, Fred and Mary had met in early 1969 at a bus station in Cheltenham, England. And I'm sorry if there's any towns that I mispronounce. I'm not familiar with English towns. <laughs> um... At the time that they met, Mary was just 15 years old and Fred was 27. So when they met, Mary didn't really fancy Fred. She thought he looked pretty gross and unkept. Um, but despite this, he continued to sit next to her whenever they both saw each other at the bus stop. And he, uh, on two separate occasions, asked her on a date, but she denied both times. Despite denying the dates, he still insisted that he accompany her home, uh, accompany her on her walk home from the bus stop so that she wouldn't get in any danger. I feel like if he took a hint, um, none of this would have happened. Right? Like, why <laughs> yeah. couldn't he just have some social skills? <laughs> so many people would still be alive. He's literally twice her age and like, no, I'm not going to take no as an answer. It's gross. That's predatory. It's honestly That's, gross. Yeah. yeah. So through the conversations that they had at the bus station and walking home, um, because obviously it would probably be very uncomfortable for Mary if this man was just talking at her and getting progressively more angry. So she did engage in conversation with him. Um, and through it, Fred had learned that she worked at a local baking shop. Uh, so knowing this, Fred approached a random woman who was going into the bake shop and asked her to give Mary a gift uh, from the man outside. After which, uh, Fred walked into the bake shop and asked Mary on a date, which this time, probably because she's sick of hearing it, uh, Mary agreed to go on a date with him. So a few weeks after they met, Mary did end up falling for him and they were having i guess for them a very good relationship uh and mary ended up quitting her job uh at the bakery and moving in full-time with fred um to take care of his two daughters whose names were charmaine and anna marie um both of whom were from a previous marriage that he had with a woman named Catherine reina costello uh, Charmaine was not the biological daughter of Fred. It was actually the daughter of Catherine, as well as um, a man of Asian descent. 
But despite that, Fred took in this daughter as his own uh, and raised them and still loved them regardless. Um, Mary, being only 15 or 16 at the time, didn't want her parents to know that she quit her job and moved in with an older man. So she actually uh, requested that Fred give her enough money so that every Friday she could go show her parents the money she made from the week of baking so they wouldn't get suspicious of her quitting her job. However, after months of dating, Mary decided that finally she would tell her parents that she was no longer working and that she was actually in a committed relationship with Fred, and she then introduced them to him. Hmm. So, as you may have guessed, because she was only 15 and he was 27, meeting the parents didn't go over well. Uh, neither of the parents liked Fred, with her mother calling him a pathological liar and her dad directly threatening Fred and saying that he would be calling social servants, social servant, goodness, <laughs> he would be calling social services if they had continued dating because she was underage. I feel like that's a reasonable response, though. Like, if I brought a 27-year-old home at 15 years old, like... That is the only reasonable response for a parent to do. Like, to oh, make. Yeah. Right? I completely agree. Yeah, like, they're not going to be like, this is a good idea. We're going to let you guys be together. Yeah, their yeah. spider senses were like, uh, you're a predator. No. <laughs> so, despite the wishes of Mary's parents, she continued to see Fred and in 1970 actually became pregnant with his child, which prompted them to move into a house together in Gloucestershire. Um, as a result of her moving in with him and getting pregnant, uh, uh, her dad followed through on his threat and actually did call social services, stating that their 15-year-old daughter was having sexual relationships with an adult male and was also rumored to be prostituting herself. So, as a result, she was placed into a group home for troubled teenagers, however, was released back to her parents uh, on her 16th birthday. Wait, so she became pregnant at 15? Yeah. Did she, did she keep that baby? Do we know? Uh, yes, she did keep that baby. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so um, when she got released back to her parents from the group home... Um, she wanted to go live again with Fred. However, Fred was currently serving a 30-day prison sentence because of petty theft. Um, but despite this, which probably should have been a huge red alarm for Mary, uh, as soon as he was released, she returned to live with him and, again, his two daughters. So, in another attempt to keep them apart, um, her, her father, sorry, once again had called social servants social services i'm having a lot of trouble with that <laughs> word tonight um and once again mary was placed into another group home on march 6th of 1970 however this time she was released from the home uh probably much too soon but she was released on the condition that she would be returning to her family and terminating her pregnancy which in the 70s abortion was still like a really looked down upon thing so i think for them to actually want her to make that decision was a very big move for them um so with this in mind she agreed that she would um want to be released as long as she went back to the family and terminated the pregnancy but as you probably guessed she lied when she said she'd be doing this, and she promptly left home again and went right back to Fred's house um, after these arrangements were made. 
It was at this point that her father assumed that she was kind of too far gone at this point, and he actually cut ties with her and forbade her from ever coming home. Uh, so at this point, Mary and Fred were allowed to be together because his her family just wanted nothing to do with her anymore. Um, so three months after her release from this group home, um, Fred and Mary moved into another home together, but this time it was a two-story home in Gloucester. And on the 17th of October in 1970, Mary gave birth to her and Fred's first child together, whose name was Heather Ann. Just two months after their daughter's birth, Fred was once again sent to prison, this time for theft of uh, car parts. And this left 17-year-old Mary to look after uh, her own child as long as Fred's two other children. So, yeah. So this being bad enough on its own, uh, and these two young children were terribly comfortable with Mary, uh, Fred left Charmaine, sorry, Fred made Charmaine and Anne-Marie refer to Mary as their mother uh, and said that they couldn't call her anything but mother. While living with Mary, um, unfortunately, Charmaine and Anne-Marie experienced a significant amount of physical and emotional abuse. Um, This included being bound and gagged while naked, um, as well as being hit with a wooden spoon, um, among some other very cruel uh, things that were said to them. Um, so it was known that, uh, Rosemary very much favored her own daughter and she significantly abused Charmaine and Anna Marie simply because she was jealous that they came from another mother and she just didn't like that Fred still had relations with them. Um, and although it was, it wasn't confirmed, it was heavily believed that Mary had murdered Charmaine shortly before Fred was released from prison. So is Charmaine the daughter or the wife? I forget. She's the daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah, She's the stepdaughter, so, right? Like, not mm-hmm. Fred's biological daughter? Yeah, exactly. She mm. was Fred's um, stepdaughter. So, in June of 1971, Charmaine had gone missing, um, and when Anne-Marie, uh, so Fred's daughter, questioned Rosemary about it, uh, Rosemary simply told her that her real mother came to get Charmaine to live with her in Scotland and that she left Anne-Marie with them for their care. So that was a little odd. Why would she take one child but not the other? Um, So Anne-Marie was obviously still very confused about this. So when Fred was released from prison, Anne-Marie asked him the same question, thinking she'd get a more real answer because that was her father. However, upon asking him, he simply told her, quote, she wouldn't want you, love. You're the wrong color, unquote. What? Yeah, so he was clearly in on it. Oh my goodness. Um, Although it was initially speculated that Fred was actually the murderer of Charmaine, it was determined that it was much more possible that Rosemary had done it because Fred was in jail at the time of the murder, so he couldn't have possibly committed it. Yeah. However... It was noted that he was complicit in concealing the body. Uh, Rosemary hid the body somewhere within the household while he was in prison. And then upon being released from prison, he took her naked body uh, and buried her in the backyard of their current home. There is speculation that they kept some of her bones as souvenirs um, because when the body was found, it was missing its kneecaps as well as some of the finger, wrist, toe, and ankle bones. However, Fred denies that they ever mutilated or dismembered or kept any parts of the body. 
but how trustworthy can these people's word be yes but those are the bones that are most likely to get lost when you're excavating a skeleton interesting so that does it does make sense like most of the time you never get all of your finger bones and all of your toe bones because they just kind of like they're just so small right yeah they're so small and they aren't connected to anything anymore so they get lost super easy could it also very interesting could it have also wow could it have also been um like scavengers i feel like they wouldn't go for those parts of the body though no they tend to go for like the more meatier bones than the smaller yeah. one yeah yeah i was just going to say i think in this particular situation maybe it wouldn't be scavengers simply because it was in like their suburban okay. yard yeah. um so it just i'm not sure if there would have been time for scavengers to have found them um but that being said um following the disappearance of charmaine um Reina Costello was getting increasingly worried about the well-being and welfare of her daughters, Anna Marie and Charmaine. Um, So in August of 1971, she actually went to uh, Gloucester, where Fred and Rose were living, to confront Fred. And it's believed she was also going to ask um, for a formal divorce and to get the, um, the custodial rights to her daughters. However, unfortunately, we never got to see her get the um, custodial rights of her daughters because this visit to Fred's home in Gloucester was the last time she was ever seen alive. So it is believed that Fred had gotten Rena intoxicated uh, and then proceeded to strangle her to death. And then after strangling her, he then very significantly dismembered her body in a lot of parts. Um, and placed the body parts in various plastic bags, and then he buried these plastic bags in a nearby field to their home. Uh, Much like the body of Charmaine, his daughter, uh, the toes and fingers of the body were missing when it was exhumed. However, like Journey said, it is a possibility that they just went missing during the exhumation process because they are what is most frequently lost. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Why didn't... Catherine get custodial rights over her children to begin with like he was a known criminal he's had lots of jail time he's overall not a great guy was she worse like I don't understand why she wouldn't get them I'll be honest I'm not really certain um I I feel like unless she files for it she can't get sole custody like, even though he's a terrible guy, it would have to go through, like, social services and they'd have to get legal aid or someone involved to, like, legally prove he cannot care for the kids. But if he's, like, in and out of prison, I feel like that's not grounds to give someone sole custody. Yeah, you but usually I mean? during, like a like, a custody like agreement or whatever like during the court process they have to like look at which parent is better or worse and i feel like he wouldn't be able to get to spend time like that much time with his children and have to or like be the sole caregiver versus someone who's maybe she not just, as unreliable yeah she just may not have like tried to file for custody beforehand and so when she figured oh wow yeah he can't take care that's when she unfortunately was killed mm, yeah yeah, unfortunately, I don't know the 
ans- like the true answer to that, but I'm, there is a lot, obviously, to speculate as to why. One of the reasons probably being because it was the 70s and the man just might have had uh, like more of a one-up in getting custodial rights at that time just because of the inequalities between men and women, but I'm not positive. Fair enough. So... A few months after Raina's murder, uh, it was January 29th of 1972 that Rose and Fred uh, got married. Um, And at their marriage, they didn't allow any friends or family. Not that I think any still wanted anything to do with them. Uh, And in addition, Fred lied on the marriage certificate saying that he was a bachelor because he never did formally get divorced from Raina. Um, So... Shortly after uh, getting married, they became pregnant with their second child several months later, and they then moved into a new three-story home. They rented out the top two floors uh, of their new home to visiting travelers because they just needed some extra money for the house. On the 1st of June in 1972, Mary gave birth to their second child, and because of when she was born, they named her May June, (laughs) which made me laugh a little. (laughs) That's funny. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, and very quickly after giving birth to May June, um, Mary began prostituting herself out of one of the upper floor bedrooms in their home uh, to make some extra money for the children, and she began advertising her services in a local magazine. Yikes. Nice. Classy. Yeah. Yeah, so in addition to prostitution, um, she also just enjoyed engaging in casual sex with both men and women, and Fred and Rosemary were both known to enjoy doing this together. Um, But as they got more comfortable um, with this casual sex, they began getting increasingly brutal and sadistic with the women in particular. Um, They would inflict great deals of pain on them, and if they screamed or expressed pain... Uh, Rosemary would ask them, quote, aren't you woman enough to handle it, unquote? That grosses me out. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Don't like that. Yeah. So as her prostitution continued and she started to feel more uh, free and confident with her sadistic pleasures, it grosses me out a little to say the sentence that she felt free with it because if she didn't, none of this might have happened. Um, but as she got more comfortable with this, um, she designated a certain room for her prostitution to which they called Rose's room and they equipped it with, uh, stuff like bondage tools and sex toys and stuff like that. In addition to peepholes and a baby monitor so that Fred could see and listen in on her sessions whenever he pleased. Oh, oh, yeah. He was a known voyeur, so he very frequently was, uh, looking in. That is yeah. just gross. Yeah, so she began doing, she began prostituting around 1972, and by 1983, Mary had eight children, five of which were Fred's, and the others uh, were of her clients. However, Fre- Fred raised all eight children as his own. Uh, he reportedly told the children of darker complexion that they looked different because he had a black great-grandmother. Uh, that obviously was a lie. They just weren't his legitimate children, but he didn't want them to know that. So it was known, unfortunately, or it is known now, that Rose, Mary, and Fred significantly abused all of the children physically and emotionally. However, um, one of the worst instances uh, of abuse in their home 
was all committed towards their daughter, uh, or Fred's daughter, sorry, Anne-Marie. So, in 1972, so we're going back a bit again, Fred told his daughter, Anne-Marie, that he and Rose were such good parents that they wanted to teach her how to satisfy her husband when she got married and that they were going to teach her and give her practice. No. Oh my God. Yeah. So Fred, yeah, Fred would, um, strip her down or have her stripped down. Uh, and then he would bind her to the bed and use something to gag her before proceeding to sexually assault his own daughter during this act, Rose reportedly told, uh, Rosemary reportedly told Anne-Marie, quote, everybody does it to every girl. It's a father's job. Don't worry and don't say anything to anybody, unquote. I oh. hate this so much. I yeah. feel physically sick. No. Yeah. Oh. I, it's definitely a hard case to listen to. Um, by the time Anne-Marie was just 13 years old, both Rose and Fred were partaking in the sexual assault, um, and they'd also forced Anne-Marie to um, begin prostituting herself out of their home. At 13? At 13 years old, yeah. Which meant that she was younger when all of this started, too, right? Like, at least, at least a year or two. Absolutely, yeah. Oh my god. So Fred and Rose um, continued to sexually assault and videotape their assaults with Anne-Marie until eventually, um, I believe it was around uh, the 19, late 1980s to early 90s, uh, she ended up confiding in some friends at school about what was happening to her, and the friends went to their parents, who then went to the police about the abuse. Um, so... The parents going to the police led to them to looking into more about Fred and uh, Mary, and they were charged on the 6th of August in 1992 with sexually assaulting... Sorry, Fred was charged with sexually assaulting his daughter three times, and Rosemary was charged with child cruelty. Despite all of the evidence that was against them, uh, the case ended up falling through and both Fred and Rosemary began, uh, actually got to walk because the witnesses that they were going to call to stand refused to testify. Um, I think they were, one of them was one of the sisters of Anne Marie, so she was just too frightened to, and I believe one of them was another victim. Despite walking free, there was now a raising suspicion surrounding the recent disappearance of their oldest daughter, Heather Ann. Um, For some reason, in a lot of the articles and books that I've read about this, they gloss over the disappearance of their first daughter, Heather Ann. Um, However, she went missing in June of 1987 under mysterious circumstances, but it wasn't really looked into until... Uh, after the trial of sexual assault against Anne Marie. So through investigating um, Heather Ann's disappearance and looking into the parents as suspects now, uh, the police uncovered a lot more than anyone was expecting. Uh, during the investigation, they actually uncovered the remains of multiple people, including Heather Ann, uh, who were all found dismembered and buried in the yard of the home. Fred and Rosemary would sexually torture each of their victims before strangling them to death and then dismembering their bodies and burying them in the yard. 
Uh, many of their victims were either sexual partners to Fred and Rosemary or um, were hired on as nannies uh, to take care of Fred and Rosemary's children, but were often found uh, because they were hitchhiking or something on the road. So with the discovery of all of these dismembered bodies in the yard, Fred and Mary were rightfully so arrested in February of 1994. During this trial, uh, Mary denied any involvement in murdering the victims. She stated that her husband was completely criminally responsible for the murders, and he was the only one responsible. Um, But despite her attempts at this lie, there was still enough evidence to convict her of 10 murders, and she was sentenced to life in prison. As for Fred, he was convicted of 12 murders, uh, two of which Mary wasn't convicted for because they actually occurred before he knew Rosemary. One of these murders was that of a woman who was eight months pregnant oh. with his child. Oh. Um, and uh, it's believed that his first wife, so Raina Costella, was jealous of their relationship and wanted him to break it off. So instead of just breaking it off, he thought it'd be easier <laughs> to kill and hide the body. What? yeah that makes sense so yeah of course it's so much easier to murder than to break up yeah that's what i always thought (laughs) that that, you don't do that with all of your past relationships instead of just breaking up you just murder and hide their bodies because that's i feel like that would be a really easy way because you don't have to worry about anybody's feelings getting hurt or them like that's true causing you issues in the future it's just done that's true it's just just New life right there. You might <laughs> yeah. have to move to another continent, but... <laughs> I'm not condoning this. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, although they both um, were subjected to uh, charges and trials, Mary was tried first, um, and while Fred was in his pre-trial detention, so he was in prison awaiting his uh, trial, he actually... Um, asphyxiated himself with a makeshift rope that I believe he made out of his um, bedclothes in prison. Um, so he hung himself and died on the 1st of January in 1995. So he is six feet underground today and Rosemary is still in prison. Uh, and found by his body was a suicide note that he had drawn a headstone uh, that said... I don't remember exactly what it had said, but the gist of it was Fred and Mary West uh, together till death or something along those lines, basically stating he wants to be married or he wants to be buried with Rosemary, no matter how far apart that they died. How romantic. (laughs) It reminds me of something like like uh, bathroom stall graffiti, like grade six, like (laughs) love you forever. Bury us together. Except we killed 12 people together. (laughs) Yeah. So, although I didn't go into a lot of detail about the murders themselves, um, I just felt that there was a significant amount of information to cover about the character uh, descriptions of of Fred and Rosemary, um, as well as kind of how they got started. Um, But I did just want to briefly say the names of the 12 victims, just because obviously we hear the names of the killers and serial killers a lot, but a lot of the victims don't get the recognition that they should be getting. Um, 
So the 12 victims were Anne McFall, who was an unknown age at the time of death. And Anne McFall was the carrier of his unborn child. Um, and Charmaine West, who was eight years old. Catherine Bernadette Reno West, or Costello, uh, as her maiden name is. She was 27 at the time of her murder. Uh, then was Linda Carol Goh. She was age 19. There was Carol Ann Cooper, who was 15 years old. Lucy Catherine Partington, who was just 21, uh, as well as Teresa Siegenthaler, who was also 21. Um, there was Shirley Hubbard, who was only 15. Juanita Marion Mott was 18 years old. Shirley Ann Robinson was 18 as well. Uh, Allison Jane Chambers was 16. And finally, their own daughter, Heather Ann West, who they determined... Uh, did not simply go missing, but was killed at the hands of her own parents, was just 16 when they murdered her. Oh my goodness. So that's the uh, case study. Um, a little more vague on the murder. I, again, just thought that the familial abuse and the operation of how they ran their uh, prostitution brothel was run was really important to how all of this occurred. Um, but yeah, that's the story of Fred and Mary West. Interesting. I definitely went into this thinking that they would, like, go out and kill people, like, I don't know, like, Ted Bundy, like, have the wife be like, oh, I'm injured, can you come help me? And then the husband comes around and, like, kills the person. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen. I did not expect it to be so gruesome and disgusting. I was thinking the same thing, too. Yeah, yeah. I honestly went into this case not knowing a thing, and I'd almost just rather continue not knowing a thing, because <laughs> these are terrible people. Yeah, yeah, oh my goodness. I've heard their names, like, here and there during research, but I've never bothered to look into their case. Yeah, definitely was not what I was expecting, but... Well, yeah, thank you. That was very interesting. And now, Nicole, do you want to tell us all about why they did what they did or that stuff (laughs) (laughs) yes i lost my train of thought (laughs) um i don't really go into why they did what they did but i do talk about like different types of team killers i'm gonna call them um and different like pathologies and stuff like that so um like rebecca had briefly talked about in episode 20 Um, When we looked at the female serial killers, um, the lethal lovers, teen killers are a typology of serial killer that murder with a partner or sometimes in a group. So they'll often have one or more people joining them. Um, They're interchangeably known as couple killers, partner killers, team killers, or tandem killers. Uh, But just for the purpose of the episode, I'm going to be referring to them as team killers. Uh, And unfortunately, there's not a lot of research and information surrounding team killers and kind of like the similarities and differences between them and solo serial killers, like those who kill by themselves. That being said, though, I did find a couple really interesting academic articles and studies that looked into these pathologies. Some were like dissertations and some were a thesis of some sort, but it was like a proper study, so... I'm still going to use it. And uh, I just want to briefly go over some key points of solo killers um, just before we kind of delve into team killers. And it's 
mainly because the majority of research that's been conducted on this population focuses on individual characteristics and profiles rather than like the differences between different types of killers. So when you think of a serial killer, your first thought's probably a white male between the ages of 20 and 40 who kill within their own race and often target young adult women who are typically white. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is the case because these killers have now become like the traditional conceptualization of solo serial killers, um, especially through media and everything. That's just who is portrayed the most and who's spread the most. And these individuals are seen to be social loners, but also viewed as intelligent and charming. They often act alone, and only sometimes will they act in teams. So research conducted by Waster in 2020 found that there are six distinct types of solo serial killers. These include those who have multiple motives and choose multiple victims, those who kill relatives due to anger and or convenience, Um, And it was noted that these types of killers often had longer killing career lengths. So throughout my research and stuff that I did, I'll be calling it career. Um, That's basically like from the start of when they started killing to the end. So it's like a serial killer's career. Um, There's also organized killers who killed other criminals. Those who offend against hitchhikers or johns, they're called. Um, doing so either to avoid detection and arrest, to get attention because of a mental illness, or surprisingly as part of a cult. Um, There are also those who offend for financial gain, often killing employees. And lastly, there are killers that kill more transient individuals, or what are known as street people, just for enjoyment. And so these victims would include like random community members, prostitutes, and homeless individuals. So moving over from solo killers to team serial killers, around 28% of serial killers in the U.S. between 1800 and 1995 worked with one or more partners. So it's not a lot, but still kind of a lot. (laughs) (laughs) More than we'd like, I'm sure. More than we'd like. Um, And one of the studies I read, they, they said that they're were 62 female serial killers between that same time period, so 1800 and 1995, in the United States. Um, Only 62? Apparently, with the research I found. Um, And a third of them acted in teams. So it was a much higher percentage of women acting in teams than men. I wonder why that is. I kind of go into it. Not really. Ooh, kind of. yay. Okay. I'll see. Let me know if I answer your question. <laughs> okay. Um, so the majority of these team killers acted with two people, and the largest group actually contained five people. So there's often pairs of two men, two women, or a man and a woman pair. <laughs> and these killers are often unique in the sense that they have this kind of shared sense of agreement and understanding between each other. Um, one of the articles I read, he said, like, you've got a gaydar and you've also got a murdar. Um, (laughs) so these couples, like, can sense out other individuals who would have the same sadistic interests in them. And so that's their, like, murdar to find who they'd kill with. I thought it was (laughs) silly. I like the word murdar. 
murder. Yeah, that's just fun. Um, <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> we'll coin that term or whatever it is. Um, get in the dictionary. <laughs> but um, that being said, though, research has shown that one member of the team, even though they do have this understanding and connection, they'll generally turn on the other, and this will often lead to their arrest and ultimately their conviction. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, it's the woman that will turn on their partner. Oh, if it's like a male a female. Yeah. That's interesting. So um, within these groups, there are four common subgroups that have been proposed. So these include a dominant submissive pair, equally dominant teams, an extended family or group, and then lastly, organized or ceremonial social groups. So the dominant submissive is kind of the typical one that you hear of or think of when you hear of like a male-female pairing. And I guess in um, The Lethal Lovers, that was more of a dominant submissive as well. Yeah. So this is where, obviously described by its name, you have one partner that has more influence over the crime itself and the other individual. And this is often a male and the submissive partner is usually female and not involved in the crime or not as involved. Um, but it's also said that when they are involved, they'll do so in hopes of pleasing their male partner. And this is when they'll often act as bait to lure the victims, um, like we talked about earlier. And when faced with serious legal charges, they'll often testify that their partner brainwashed them. So they pull the whole, it wasn't me, like, they made me do it, that whole thing. Um, Equally dominant teams are where both individuals willingly participate in the crimes. So this was kind of like the toolbox killers. I think, I don't think they had a more dominant one because the two were equally as disgusting. Yeah. Um, So they both gained satisfaction from the crime at hand. And if it is a male-female duo, the female may participate in capturing and binding of the victim, but they often won't participate in the actual, like, torture and murder of the crime. So it's kind of like the beforehand aspect, but not the actual nitty-gritty part, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you explained that, because I was really confused, because I didn't think that a dominant dominant would work in, like, a serial killer aspect, because I feel like they would fight, Mm -hmm. and then it just, like, they would end up killing each other. Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of what I thought, too. But but... it makes more sense when you put it like that, and you're like, oh, like, the toolbox killers. Oh, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about now. So they just have their different, like, interests. So they both gain pleasure from it, but it's something that... It's a different sort of pleasure. Yeah, but they're both actively participating, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so even though, say, they may not partake in the torture and murder itself, they may get their pleasure from watching the crime. So if one dominant enjoys doing the killing, the other dominant may enjoy watching. Kind of like, well, I guess it wasn't the killing part, but Fred enjoyed watching Rosemary do whatever. Kind of different in that aspect, but... Oh, well. Um, and it's also common for equally dominant teams to relive crimes through photos or trophies. So this is the pair that will often collect things from their um, victims. And if it's a male-female duo, or I guess a homosexual duo, um, they use these 
trophies to enhance their sex lives between each other. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Right? <laughs> um, the extended family or group, they're either biological families or those in cults that consider themselves families. So an example of that would be the Manson family. Um, they partake in killings for a whole lot of reasons that can range from like robbery to sexual gratification to like ideological reasons and beliefs or just like a mix of everything. And lastly, there's the organized or ceremonial social groups. And these are similar to the extended family or group. Um, but it's more so that they're driven by their shared ideological or political beliefs. So these killings often involve like a form of ceremonial ritual. Um, and in these cases, sexual motivations are less common. So it's less sexually motivated, more cult ritual, sacrificial motivated, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. And I'll... I want to note, too, that, well, it's important to note that while there are four distinct subgroups that I just kind of talked about, um, there also have been and can be team killers where the the woman doesn't want to, or at least one of them doesn't want to or hasn't participated in the killings. Um, But it's as part of a consensual sadomasochistic relationship, as the article said. And so, unfortunately, they may be um, subjected to physical and sexual torture by their partner. So, it's less of a say in doing so, in that sense. Um, Similarly to the solo killers, while the solo killers had six kind of typologies, team killers are described to have seven. And most of them are very similar to solo killers, with a few differences. Um, but these seven include those who kill because of a mental illness, attention, cult motivations, anger, and or to avoid arrest. These killers were found to have killed using their hands and targeted more transient type victims, interestingly. Um, there are teams that kill people off the streets for enjoyment, teams that target patients, so that would be like the lethal lovers. Um, those that kill family due to convenience, those who target employees for financial gain, those who kill multiple people for multiple motives, and lastly, teams that partake in organized killings of criminals. So this one's like can kind of be seen as like gangs almost, where it's an organized group killing a lot of people or an organized group of criminals. Mm-hmm. So the typologies that are identical between solo and team killers are those who are organized and kill criminals, as well as those who have multiple victims and kill for multiple motivations. Um, so it's apparently it's quite common, or most common, in a sense, that you'll have multiple types of victims and multiple motivations. That's just kind of standard across the board for all types of serial killers. Um, And the one typology that was unique to team killers are those that target patients. So, like I said again, as for the hundredth time, like the lethal lovers that we covered in episode 20, um, these teams often work in healthcare and patients are easy targets for them. Oh, that was my oven going off. Um, This results in 
this sort of typology, the patient targeting patient typology, they have larger number of victims and they also have longer careers since they're not easily detected. Interesting. I didn't know that only uh, team killers really targeted patients, but I guess that sort of makes sense because they would always in a way need like a lookout mm-hmm. for what they're doing. Yeah, I would have thought because a lot of the like angel of deaths that I've heard of, I thought were solo killers. Yeah. Um, but I guess in the research that they conducted, it just show it seemed to appear more in team killers. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I am going to throw a few stats out at you. Um, that no, Wast- we love stats. <laughs> that Waster <laughs> found in their 2020 archival study. So this data set contained a, almost 5,000 killers. I think it was like 4,956. So basically 5,000, we'll say. Um, 90% were male, 55% were white, and 78% were solo killers. It was found that there were differences in race between solo and team killers. So I'll list the solo killer stats first and then the team killers. Um, So 58% were white compared to 46%. 29% were black versus 35%. And 13% were of other race versus 19%. So there were actually less white team killers than solo killers. That's I wonder really why that is. That's yeah. yeah. Which I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. At all. Um mm. and those who kill by themselves have slightly fewer victims on average, but they have longer careers. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. Um and I don't know why this kept coming up, but surprisingly they were most likely to kill more with their hands. Um I kind of talk like, about it later, but so solo killers were more likely to kill with their hands. As in, like, than... strangulation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or just, like, bludgeoning and more hands-on a- approach. <laughs> Versus, like, just shooting them or poison. Yeah, like, poison, sh- yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, solo killers were also seen to have higher percentages in motives. So they their main motive was just for enjoyment, which was 42% compared to 18% for team killers. Um, They also had anger, which was 19% versus 8%. And the motives for team killers were more commonly for financial gain, which was 45% compared to 25%, and were organized, which was a 19% compared to 1% of solo killers. So, Wait, so 1% of solo killers killed for financial gain? So 1% of solo killers were organized, like their motive was organized or something like that. I'm not oh, entirely so sure like super what... super specific, or- kind of? Yeah. Yeah. 25% of solo killers had financial gain motives. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was the 45% of team killers that had financial gain motives. Right, Okay. Another difference between the two um, were their relationships to the victims. So they shared a primary and secondary relationship. So this was strangers and multiple victim types. Um, But team killers were found to also mainly kill criminals and employees or customers rather than family or home invasions, which were solo killers, like main 
victim types. Solo killers were more often likely to kill in more intimate ways, like I kind of mentioned with kind of hands-on approach. And this could be explained by the different, sorry, the differing motives. Um, so team killers were more likely to kill for financial gain, which could suggest that they'd kill in a more like quicker, less intimate method. So like poisoning, shooting, something of that sort. While solo killers who mainly killed for enjoyment, um, they would have a more intimate approach since they sadistically enjoyed watching them kill someone. Basically, to sum all of that up, because that was a lot, um, (laughs) there's differences in the race and sex of killers between the number of victims, the killer's length of career, how they killed their victims, their motives, and the relationship with victims. So basically, in a lot of aspects, team killers like differ significantly than solo killers. And uh, team killers often have more victims over a shorter length of time, while um, solo killers will have more victims and... Sorry, less victims and kill for a longer period of time, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if... I wonder why it is that team killers just commit crime for a shorter period, but more victims. Like, I wonder if they just get too cocky and that's why they're caught so soon. Yeah, it's usually, so they are usually um, caught because of the downfall. Like, something happens where the more dominant individual gets careless. And so they're more easily caught in that aspect. And I feel like just having more people involved in a crime it just becomes more messy with evidence and there's more to track you on. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. But then you also have more hands to unfortunately kill more people. Um, So now I wanted to kind of talk about the differences between like a male, male team, a female, female team, and then a male, female team. And so teams of two or more men generally are not going to be related to each other. And, like, the one exception... Well, not one, but there are some exceptions, and one of them was the Hillside Stranglers. They happen to be cousins, but it's not often heard of having pairs being related to each other. Interesting. I wouldn't... I've never even thought about, like, brothers and sisters who kill. Like, that's never... Mm -hmm. It's usually usually romantic relationships that I think of when I think of team killers, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And surprisingly, when it's a male-male team, they're often diagnosed with personality disorders, so like psychopathy, rather than like mental illness disorders or mental health disorders, hmm. which yeah. I didn't, wouldn't have thought of, but I mean, it kind of makes sense. And like most of them, they would have suffered physical, emotional, and or sexual abuse as a child, and there are a few exceptions to this, though. Um, Female-female teams are a lot less common, with only a few being recorded. They don't tend to move around a lot, so this means they'll often kill in the same general area. And similar to the male-male and female-male groups, there is often a more dominant member who, like mentioned before, they have more, more of a role in the development of the crime. So they have more of a say in how the crime's carried out, what they're gonna do, And their careers, the female-female careers, often last around two years in length. 
So now so jump quite short compared to like, I mean, say the Golden State Killer. Like I know he was a solo killer, but he lasted decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, compared to wow. Yeah. So often, and I think like the cases we've covered of the any sort of teen killer hasn't exceeded more than five or ten years. Yeah, yeah, because the Lethal Lovers were, what, one year? No, four months. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then like, Jasmine and Jeremy, like, Stanky and Richardson. Were, like, they, six months. <laughs> one day, or whatever their killing oh, spree was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now I'm going to jump over to the male-female teams, um, because they are most common and what we think of most often when we hear of team killers. Um, and so these partners are consistent with what's called a mating gradient. Uh, so this means that the women are always, well, almost always younger than the men. I don't know why it's called a mating gradient. I don't know where that would be used, but (laughs) that's what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. These men often or will usually have a history as a solo sexual predator prior to meeting their female partner and becoming this serial killing team. Um, And women killers that are a part of a team are also younger on average compared to solo female serial killers. So on average, it's 20 years old for team female killer and then it's 30 years old for a solo serial female killer. Which I thought was interesting. Male-female teams also, like I kind of mentioned, they're overall the most common serial killer team in the United States. I'm sure elsewhere as well, but this source I found said the United States. Their careers usually only last about a year. And they can either be in one location or moving around Excuse me, to find victims elsewhere. And like the other ones, both male and females out of this pair have more often than not been subjected to abuse when they were kids. So unfortunately, it's a common theme between everyone. And then now when looking at married and unmarried teams, it's actually been shown that teams with married women tend to be, these women tend to be more directly involved in the sexual assault aspect of the crime compared to unmarried women. Oh, I don't know if that's, that's because they're more like comfortable sexually with their partner since they're married or if there is a reason or that's just what they found. Um, but that yeah, so odd. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And like I kind of briefly mentioned, um, it's interesting to note that the females will often testify against their male counterpart, given a few, like there are a few exceptions. Um, And they'll often receive more lenient sentences being released after serving a relatively shorter sentence compared to their male partners. And so their male partners will often get life in prison or the death penalty. And so this can kind of be seen with, like, Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo. Um, If I know Rosemary was sentenced to life imprisonment, but I'm sure if Fred was still alive, she'd have more of a lenient sentence or be let out earlier. Um, I have a question that's kind of off topic, but kind of on topic. Okay. So 
Can wives testify against their husbands? Like, if it was a case of murder, they can? Yep. I thought that was one of the things that you couldn't do because you were married. Like, there was, like, a spousal... Like, you can't testify against your spouse. Would they be involved in the murder? Like, is that what you mean? Like, irregardless. Like, at the trial, can they call the wife to testify against the husband... Because I thought there was a rule that you can't testify against your spouse. From my yeah, I understanding, think usually spousal immunity um, or whatever. I believe that's what it's called. Um, I think there's a like there's a waiver that you can sign that says you're giving up that oh, okay. uh, that oath like to your partner. But I'm not quite positive i i read it like a couple years ago so my mind is not very clear on it now (laughs) yeah yeah from my understanding they can i don't know the process in which they have to go through to get there because i know like at least in the case of carla homoka and paul bernardo like even though they were married she was still able to testify against him and she went to the police and was like give me immunity and I will tell you everything. Um, Yeah. And it's often the case that the partner, the female partner will testify against them. So yeah, because that's what I was hearing, but I was like, I thought you couldn't, or yeah, it was uncommon for spouses to testify against each other, but I don't know. There's something that they can jump over. I think maybe a loophole somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's probably a loophole or something. Yeah. And along with them getting more lenient sentences women are also seen as not being able to commit such heinous crimes and this is because of of a a gender bias right we gotta love it (laughs) and this is something extremely reinforced by the media unfortunately um so a large portion of female serial killers that are partnered with a male they'll purposefully portray themselves as the victim when they go to trial if there is like really harsh punishment on the line and um this causes them to often be dismissed by the judicial system as like a passive victim so even if in reality they had a huge role in the crime they're seen as weak women that are just always the victim of like domestic violence and all of this stuff we're like granted some situations yes but from the individuals we've covered that's not often the case yeah um and in reality um women in these pairs are often they often portray characteristics of these male serial killers oh yeah but women would never kill so they can't be they can't go to jail it's not possible not possible (laughs) um if there is a confession, wow! If there is a confession of sexual involvement with the victims that the female has brought forth in trial, um, the judicial system and media will often accept this as a coerced participation. So they see it as them being coerced by their dominant male partner to say these things and to in- be involved, and that they wouldn't have actually chosen to themselves. So even if they've confessed, it's still, oh, but, yep, woman wouldn't do that. Yeah. Woman too nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. 
goodness. We would never commit the murder. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so, um, one of the authors, his name's Peter Vronsky, he wrote Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters. In this, he noted that, quote, there are no histories of female serial killers committing acts as brutal and as depraved as those they commit when they act as accomplices of male serial killers, end quote. So, again, so, just saying it's we do it because of the men. Pretty much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. I mean, I don't know. I think that woman, like, what's her name? Like, Mary Laveau from, like, the 1800s who would bathe in the blood of her victims i don't know i think she was pretty bad i think she's pretty bad but (laughs) add a man in there even worse (laughs) oh could you imagine oh my goodness (laughs) um and that's unfortunately all i had it wasn't a whole lot but um kind of gives you a glance at the differences between the two well like solo and teams and then differences between the team killers and it's mm-hmm. tough because there isn't a lot of research out there, so I kind of had to scrape together what I could find, but... No, it was yeah. very informative. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I I didn't really know. I kind of wish that there was more, like, information and research done on it, because it's such a, I don't know, intriguing area of, like, serial killers. Like, how does this actually work? Well, I but. feel like the like mindset and what goes through like the mental processes differ significantly when you're killing with someone else yeah yeah definitely like i I feel like even just doing menial tasks with another person differs than doing it by yourself well the amount of trust that you'd have to have in that other individual to not like rat you out or whatever or go behind your back they like oh yeah this person is killing people. And then, like, how this kind of comes back to the murder piece. But, like, how do you just go up to someone and be like, so, do you ever think about torturing, sexually assaulting, and killing people? Yeah, no? how does that come up okay. in conversation? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, with the lethal lovers, like, pillow talk. Like, hey, do you want to kill this person? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Please leave. I hope I'm never approached by one of those people because I don't, I don't want to give off murder vibes. And what I happens if I don't look like a murderer? And what happens <laughs> if you say no? Do they kill you then? If you're like, no, I do not want to kill a person. Well, so I was reading when I was reading some of them. They talked a lot. Wow, a lot about um, Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamoka. I know we're not covering them this episode, but a lot of research was done on them. Apparently, Paul Bernardo was like going up to women he was kind of seeing and, like, slowly introducing his, like, sexual fantasies and what he wanted to try. And, like, the women were just not interested, so they just left. But I guess it didn't, like, switch for him. Like, he didn't think of, oh, I'm just going to kill them. Like, he's just like, I gotta find the perfect murdering wife and my (laughs) life will be set. (laughs) And then he found Carla. (laughs) Who was oh all sorts of messed up. Living in the Barbie dream house. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. That was quite an episode. Um, our next episode is kind of like a part two to our spooktacular stories last October, where we're going to cover three more unsolved cases. 
and they are the Cleveland Torso Murderer, the Long Island Serial Killer, also known as Lisk, and lastly, London's Murderer, dubbed Jack the Stripper. (laughs) So I'm kind of excited to hear about Jack the Stripper. Um, But yeah, and I do have a joke for you guys. I'm so excited. I'm nervous, but I'm excited. Make it bigger so that I can read it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Five British teenagers were shot last night, but when the police investigated the crime scene, they only found one bullet. The officer also noticed that the bullet holes entered the bodies on the right side of their heads and came out on the left. The officer turned to his colleague and stated, Looks like the bullet was shot in one direction. (gasps) Oh my god. Oh, there's five of them? Yeah. Nile, Harry, Louis. They're... Yeah. Okay. Did, did you name all <laughs> I, of them? <laughs> I was trying to, but I don't think I know them well enough. Uh, Wait, Louis, there's Zane, Louis, Neil, or Nile, <laughs> and Harry. Oh, and Harry. That's okay. five, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join us next time when we talk about One Direction. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So, <laughs> Rebecca, where can people find us? So, people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, all at What the Forensics. Or on Twitter, we go by WT Forensics PC. Um, or in addition, you can go to our website, that's whatthefrensics.ca, where we have a uh, contact page that you can message us uh, any questions about episodes or future episode ideas and it also has our sources and our episodes and some info about us or if you just wanted to get in contact with us directly you can email us at whatthefrensics at gmail.com and oh also on our website there is a little bit of merch there's stickers um yeah so go check that out (laughs) this has been another episode of what the forensics we hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.